0: Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Dillman.
1: And I'm Stephen Craig.
0: So I would like to uh, thank all our listeners so far. Um, It's been a pretty interesting five weeks so far. Um, I personally have never done a podcast before.
1: Uh, This was the first for me too.
0: Um, It's been a lot of fun. Uh, The feedback we've been getting from our listeners has been great. And I've been hoping uh, we get more feedback so we can make this show even better.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for all the listens, guys.
0: Uh, so during this week, um, as I mentioned in, my last, uh, in our last episode, um, I've been working more on the semi-automatic inspection machine. Um, we got the parts ordered from Open Build. I ordered some servo motors from Leedshine, and these aren't your typical hobby servos. They're ginormous. Uh, they're like steppers, except I think their internals are slightly different, and they allow for a lot higher resolution in positioning. Um, and they do have a higher, uh, they can achieve at a higher RPM of rotational speed, and they have a lot flatter torque curve, um, so it's better for a high-speed movement and that kind of stuff.
1: Well, the, the, the application for this is, uh, at least for this model, is going to be an optical inspection, right?
0: Yeah, and actually servos aren't actually really good at that because they work by sampling its position, and so it will basically rock slightly back and forth, yeah. so it can stay on its its uh, location. Its
1: average position is in the middle of where it needs to be. Yeah.
0: yeah, and so it's it's kind of the wrong use case, but I I basically looked at that sheet and saw how much it it would move, and it's actually under the deflection of the belts. We're using G two G T two timing belts. Yeah, so it's actually under. That deflection, so yeah. you actually won't see that end the camera.
1: Right, just just the natural stretch of the belt.
0: Yeah, we'll take care of that.
1: Well, and, and the thing is, you, on the trolley, the the thing you're actually moving is is basically just a camera, so you don't have much of a load, so you could probably get it going pretty quick.
0: Yeah, it should it should fly. Yeah. Um, and so the the servo part number from Shine on that is the IES seventeen zero six, which is actually kind of new. Um, it's an integrated servo encoder and driver. So basically you just send it pulse signals for direction and pulsing, um, uh, for each step and it takes care of the rest. It's oh, pretty that's cool. Yeah. Pretty cool. Little, little guy there. Um, do you, uh, you know how much those cost? Uh, they were like 150 bucks all in. Okay. Uh, per unit. So I had to get three of those. Um, and then we got some three uh, D printed parts. I ordered those from Shapeways. The uh, I basically I printed them on my home printer first, but I wanted a higher quality print, yeah. And decided to go to a professional service to get that done.
1: Well, I guess for for people who don't know, uh, what what is Shapeways?
0: So Shapeways is a three uh, D printed or a three uh, D basically company that will print your parts for you. It's um, a good way to put it.
1: Sure. But they, they have pretty high-quality machinery.
0: Yeah, they don't use, uh, um, I think, the FDM mm-hmm. printers. They have they have uh, powder printers. So your your quality, you don't get layers in your prints, and you get a very solid piece of hunk of plastic that's almost injection-molded quality.
1: Yeah, they, we've actually used them for some of our uh, jigs that we use for, for uh, building customer uh, yeah. stuff at Macrofab, and, and, man, they come out great.
0: Yeah, you know, we've had um, custom spacers for basically through hole parts that keep them a certain distance off a of PCB.
1: Yeah, sometimes we have like a height specification uh, for for components, so we made made some spacers and those worked out great.
0: Yeah, those work great. And uh, basically, what we uh, for those is you put them underneath the part and it holds it a certain distance before the selective solder solders them. Right. Because um, before on that. That certain project, we were actually hand soldering those those parts on, which took forever.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then you got to measure it out by hand, and it's not very efficient.
0: Yeah, and then the uh, and then I've been working a little bit more on the firmware code. Uh, basically, I need to start adding acceleration. So right now, there's a linear ramp acceleration, mm-hmm. and it's mostly implemented. Um, gotta work on it.
1: Are you wanting to change that from linear to log- logarithmic or exponential or something? I think
0: eventually it's i think it's gonna be linear at first and then I'll add a uh an exponential.
1: Yeah. Uh linear is probably more than enough.
0: Yeah, linear is probably enough, but once you get to a certain speed, you want that um you want that exponential actually deceleration. Um acceleration doesn't really matter too much, uh I I've seen in positioning systems for cameras. Sure. It's mainly getting that uh deceleration right and so you don't get a uh a jerk when it actually stops so you don't have to wait for your chassis to settle
1: yeah 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 i got you uh, it's it, that's the way to make the maximum amount of smoothness in uh, in the travel
0: yeah um so steven uh so i've been working on that what have you been working on
1: uh, so this week I've actually been uh, touching more on my uh, FX dev board um, we kind of mentioned it a little bit on the last podcast but you um, can go a little bit more into depth so so I've designed a uh, a development board which which is basically just a PC board that in, that includes uh, two solderless breadboards mm-hmm. uh, it has it has a some variable power supplies on it which it's a plus minus 15 then a variable nine volt supply so it goes from 1.25 up to nine volts and then it also has a split rail on there so uh, basically it takes the nine volts and cuts it in half in case you want to use single supply for op amps and things like that yeah um, so all of that is on board and uh, readily available and accessible through the rails on the um, on the actual breadboards themselves I have uh, jumpers that you can select the voltages that go to all the rails on there. Um, uh, in addition to that, you can run it off a nine volt battery or, um, and it has audio connectors on it. So you can, uh, the, the intent was to make it a, a development board for, um, audio applications and even a little bit more towards, uh, like guitar amplifiers and guitar pedals and uh,
0: synthesizers and
1: synthesizers and things like
0: that and that kind of stuff. So, so
1: basically you can literally plug your guitar directly into my dev board and then plug the dev board into a guitar amplifier and then build a stomp box or or build a preamp or or build whatever you're looking for uh and and all the peripherals are right there uh including actually onboard potentiometers that you can connect directly
0: to the the breadboard
1: um so it's it's an all-in-one package uh effectively
0: so steven um so you mentioned that split rail it's like it's plus minus 15 volts right well, you said? so I, you have the option of doing plus minus 15, but pretty much every stomp
1: box guy from now until, you know, back to the, the 60s have run stomp boxes off of 9 volts. Yeah, 9 volts. So so you need a virtual ground uh, yeah, yeah. That, is, that is halfway between 9 and and 0. So it it has a 4.5-volt rail, but that 4.5-volt rail is, tracks the 9. So, oh, um, so it's always half. It's always half. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, it's always half. So if you, uh, I have a variable nine volts so you can reduce that nine volts uh to kind of simulate a dying battery a mm-hmm. lot of stompbox guys love to to do that kind of stuff but say if you wanted to run your 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 whole circuit off of five volts and have a two and a half volt rail it automatically takes care of that for you
0: so uh, do you do that through a uh do you do that through a voltage voltage divider or how are you doing that
1: yeah so so it's honestly it's a voltage divider that goes into a
0: uh a uh, buffer op-amp Okay, so that's how you get you, – the, the voltage divider isn't providing the current. It's just providing the voltage reference.
1: I prefer to do it that way so that you have the really high input impedance of the op amp. Yep. And then you can drive, you know, 10 milliamps or so off of the half, the, the half, half rail. The half rail. Yeah, so, so your 9-volt rail has, uh, you know, up to, uh, you know, probably 100 and 200 milliamp output capacity. But the half rail isn't meant to source.
0: Any, yeah, any it's current. just a it's basically a, a reference. It's
1: a voltage. It's 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 a um virtual ground is yeah. what we what I typically call it. Okay. Uh so so that you can run, you know, AC signals on a uh, single supply. Okay, cool. Which which is really popular in the in the world and it's right there if you need it on the board.
0: Yep. And you were using uh you I earlier this week you were also working uh actually building a circuit on that dev board. Yeah. Um, using your uh, max, I think, 1110-something one, 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 uh, 16-bit ADC? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so... Flash DAC. So now that I have my FX dev board, um,
1: I, I'm, I'm starting to d- kind of develop a, a handful of uh, example circuits that go onto this. And I've always wanted to have a uh, an in-out board, is what I call it. In fact, the name of this one is 16 in, 16 out. It's literally just a daughter board that has a digital analog converter on it and an analog to digital converter on it. It's the interface in between the analog world and the digital world. Uh, so that's all it has on it. You can plug whatever your, your favorite micro into it and, uh, and be able to get uh, analog signals in and spit analog signals out. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it ha- I, I chose some, some, uh, some Maxim chips because, well, they're, they're cheap. Uh, but they have really great specs, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it's like I said, 16 bit in, 16 bit out, uh, so that that worked out really well um, to in a, in a interface with uh, an Arduino. Actually, I was just running an Arduino to con- to, con- to uh, control the um, 16 and 16 out, and and what I was building on the FX Dev board was actually a function generator that is stuck in a phase lock loop. Okay. Um, so it's a sawtooth generator, kind of what you would see in a synthesizer um, that we generate an analog sawtooth wave, convert that into a square wave, and then feed that back into the, uh, the uh, Arduino. So the Arduino will spit out a control voltage mm-hmm. to the function generator and then read back the square wave that comes in and compare the frequency of that square wave to what's coming in or what's being spit out, and it automatically adjusts such that the frequency of the output is exactly what
0: you ask for. So, it's, it's, so you built in some feedback to that.
1: That's yeah, exactly, and it's all running with the 16 in, 16 out digital in out board. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a marriage between the the analog function generator capability, so I can easily get um, higher frequencies out of it. As opposed to just doing a wavetable and spitting out to my DAC, yeah, I, yeah. I, I kind of I thought it'd be fun to do the the analog side of things. So uh, I've been playing around with that and and getting not significantly high frequency outputs, but but honestly, I was just trying to shoot for the audio range. So I I've got up to uh, twenty kilohertz at the moment uh, coming out of it, and with with some tweaking on the circuit, I was actually able to get it up to about. 170 kilohertz
0: yeah you were actually um also uh basically tweaking it for making sure your edges were sharp on that triangle wave Cause you you were getting yeah. this weird flat section so, on that wave yeah so so when, when
1: it comes to a an analog function generator trying to produce a sawtooth wave you have to have a linear ramp and the goal is as fast as possible to take that ramp from whatever your max voltage is down to zero and in the analog world, they just don't like to move that fast. Uh, so, so it's, it was a whole lot of playing with uh, switching in caps, uh, and, and and effectively, what you're doing is you're you're shorting the output of an of the op amp yeah. into the its input, and so picking the right transistor and picking the right drive signal for that transistor and all the all the timing and feedback, it it takes a little bit of hand selection.
0: Yeah, the uh, first. Um first breadboard that you did of it was just wires everywhere it's like a it was just like a rat nest out of a fishing rod yeah and uh eventually you had it all nicely laid out with flat wires and everything but he had you had two caps that still had their trims on yeah and there were these big uh box uh film caps i think
1: yeah, yeah. and well, and actually they're mylar
0: <laughs> oh mylar caps yeah and uh and I actually mentioned, I'm like, hey, so, you know, you can probably clean up that signal a little bit more if you release those leads a bit. And you said <laughs> they, were, they were came from your mentor.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so these okay. are
0: like the old, they, old
1: caps. These caps, uh, they were manufactured in the 60s. They were the old red Mylar caps that have, they have six dots on the top of them. And basically, the color of those six dots determine their value and their tolerance and stuff. Uh-huh. Regardless, when I was uh, I was a junior high at the time, and I was getting into electronics. There was there was this really cool guy I knew who was he was way into guitar and way into doing all the all the guitar amp stuff. And uh, he gave me these two capacitors, and I'm hung on to them, and they're like my <laughs> special caps. And there's nothing there's nothing unique about them. They're just 500 picofarad mylar caps yeah but i've never trimmed the leads i'm not gonna solder them into anything but they're in my breadboard
0: <laughs> yeah they're they're they are some of the most tarnished leads oh, on yeah, a they, cap they, i've ever seen horrible they're not they're not tin solder or solder anymore they are they're gray and they're not shiny anymore yeah just <laughs> the patina is very nice <laughs> hey they're sentimental man yeah um, and one more thing about that about that uh, the in out board yeah um, is uh, kind of a personal question at least on my end is um, so they both those chips I think the uh, max fifty uh, two seventeen and the max eleven ten mm-hmm. I think's what they were yeah um, those run on i squared c
1: actually the let me uh, the d to a runs on i squared c the a to d is spi
0: oh that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, it's just how the game is played with these two.
0: Yeah, it would be nice if those both were I square C and then you just basically put them all both on the same bus and yeah. then that's so you only have two data lines going over to your uh microcontroller instead of four. Yeah. Or I'm assuming it's two wire spies or three wire spy. 3. Okay, so five wires. Yeah.
1: And and the thing the one thing that that I find annoying about this and and I I can't stand when Maxim does this. Both of those come in their specific U Max package.
0: Yeah, it's like really wide T SOPs, basically what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in a really fine pitch.
0: Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's kind of annoying,
1: but hey, I had them. I had em made at MacroFab, so it, was, it actually worked <laughs> out pretty well. Yeah. How much did that whole board cost? I, you know, I think overall the for that entire daughter board, i I I, I can't, I don't think I spent over ten bucks on it.
0: Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's that's cheap. All right, <laughs> uh, so the last thing we've been working on this week was the uh, more work on the super simple power supply. Yep. Not a lot of work done on it this week. Um, I started designing the front panel a bit. Uh, we did do a block diagram, finally, of all the subsystems and how everything should line up, mm-hmm. what should be connected, and I think the next step on that block diagram is actually write a pseudo-circuit-level design that's just a rough outline like so sure the you know digital side's got to control the analog side but how does it control it um do we need to use digital pots do we need to do pwm certain pins yeah that kind of level
1: it's it's kind of wide open because we have so much we have anywhere we can go with it we were talking about do we just spit out high voltage levels from the from the digital side of things or do we spit out low levels and apply gain in our output stage yep. there's just a lot of variables to consider
0: Um, and then, uh, we were actually talking kind of jokingly at first, I think we were reading some article about, um, the whole internet of things is not secure and whatnot. Um, and then we came up with the idea of actually adding Twitter capability to this power supply. (laughs) And so it would tweet like every five minutes of, or every minute or, you know, however, how long of what the power supply is doing, so it's like I am outputting five volts at two amps, <laughs> and <laughs> so it'd be kind of silly. But then, and then you could have it like broadcast failure modes, like if someone accidentally tripped the current protection on it, it would automatically send out. A yeah, tweet. it immediately send it like so and so messed up their circuit and blew it up. <laughs> we, we should have it. We,
1: we should have it where we have to log in with a password to it. Oh yeah, what so it, so it says so, so it knows which one of us. Would accidentally trip it or short the power supply yeah. and then tweet that out. I think it'd be pretty funny. That would be. That, that's okay. So it's those kind of things that makes the
0: uh, internet of things kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Because um, who's going to follow a Twitter account of a power supply? You never know. There might. <laughs> there might be some geeks at there. I would follow it.
1: <laughs> you see, there's one.
0: There's already one. Ah. <laughs> uh, okay. So. Um. <laughs> So onto the rapid fire opinions, opinions, the RFO. So uh, the first uh, article was from the Metro UK, which is I guess is a newspaper over in, in London. Um, basically, engineers claim that uh, Big Ben, the big clock tower, is tilting, and this is kind of a civil engineering thing, not really our specialty. But it's just you know it's interesting that a tower that big is tilting. I guess. Um, so it says it's uh, tilting 0.26 degrees, which doesn't sound like much, but it's uh, 1.5 feet from vertical. Um, interesting thing about that is they're in, in the UK, which is on the metric system, and the newspaper was reporting it in a imperial uh, unit. <laughs>
1: well, okay, actually, the interesting thing to me here is the Big Ben was, was built in 1856.
0: Do so you actually know that date?
1: I read it. Okay. I did, I did, no, no, no. I didn't you, just know that off the top of my head. He did now. the research. I, I did a little <laughs> bit of research on this. No, no, no. The, the biggest thing that, that, that hits me on this is it was built in 1856, and in 2016, it's, it's <laughs> leaning over by 0.26 degrees. I'd say they did a good job. They did a good job? I'd, I'd say they do it. And, and they're really actually attributing
0: job. this tilt from recent construction, and they put a subway line recently in that area. So the fact that it probably wouldn't have been tilted at all if London didn't keep getting bigger and more advanced. So, so the 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 soils just moving on them. Yeah, well, whenever you do anything underground, it's going to shift soil around that's been you know compacted for two centuries now. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they,
1: back at uh, uh, back in college, the the civil engineers used to always say. Um, water plus dirt equals mud. Yeah. Uh, and that's the only thing you have to know in civil
0: engineering. <laughs> <laughs> but um also an interesting thing is they have a picture of the Big Ben tower and you look at the picture and it looks really tilted. And you're like, wow, you know, that tower is crazy tilted. And, but they have a quote from an engineer that says you have to look at the tower the right way. And then you can slightly see the tilt." So I'm like, I wonder how angled that picture is. And so I actually <laughs> opened it up and paint and and drew a line and then moved the line till it was parallel with the tower. Those guys doctored that photo. Or tilted the camera. Or tilted the camera. Any anyways, the picture shows it tilted at three degrees, which is actually less than the leaning tower of Pisa. The Tower of Pisa is four or so degrees tilted. Wow. So no, no undue alarm there Well, the I Big Ben Tower. Th- that sounds like fluff journalism. They, they just <laughs> needed something. Uh,
1: Big Ben's leaning. Yeah.
0: Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so this is one that's going to hit close to your heart. Yep. Is the uh, uh, Noritaki and Korg a long time ago said they were going to make these new dip style tubes mm-hmm. called the New Tube. That's and YouTube. Yeah, and YouTube, not N E W. So that was released, I think, a year and a half ago, something like that. And it kind of went dark, and from my mind, it was kind of like, oh, they probably released it, no interest, and so it just became vaporware. Um, but apparently, recently, a actual data sheet came out of this tube.
1: Yeah. So uh, they gosh it, it was the nam show which is the big audio shows that 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 happen every year they 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 broadcasted that uh, a while ago like a year and a half ago something like that and then like you said everything went kind of radio silent for a while and and just a few weeks ago they they released the data sheet and it's freely available to download at, as long as you give them their, your contact information but, uh, but regardless, I've been waiting for this for a while because I'm a tube nut. I love vacuum tubes. they're fun. I've been doing them for years. They're absolutely ridiculous but uh um it's it's really cool to see that after fifty years, there's uh slightly, an innovation slightly into the world. new technology yeah slightly yeah no it's actually no the funny thing is it's not even new technology it's no, literally just a different package,
0: yeah, it's actually what looks like a uh Noritake VFD package. Yeah. With um they just gutted an old display.
1: Yeah. And put put a tube in there.
0: Yeah. It, uh, well that was probably the cheapest they can do for tooling. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um but <laughs> so the, the thing about this so this is the interesting thing I think about tubes is or it compared to modern transistors and stuff. So if you pull up the data sheet for a two N three nine oh six, it's like it's still about twenty pages long. A data sheet for a single transistor. Yeah. This tube data sheet is two pages. Yeah, and the second page The second page is half of it. It's the mechanical diagram, and then there's a chart. Uh, the the anode characteristics. Anode characteristics. So, <laughs> and then the front page, half of it is description, and then you have three tables of actual data. Is it, this typical tubes? What's what? Here's the thing that's awesome
1: about it. If you go pull up an old... German tube from 1940. The data sheets are just like this too. <laughs> it's like they stayed true to the old, the old school uh, data sheets. So, so this is very typical for a tube okay. data sheet. Except uh, the funny thing is, uh, with with old tube data sheets, typically what you find is this, and maybe one more page that would show a typical application.
0: Okay. so they don't have that in this. No. Actually, I don't think there's even a pinout. No, there is not. Uh, actually, oh yeah, there it is. Yeah, yeah, in the yeah. mechanical diagram, they got a pin out there. It's a,
1: it, just, it's a bad one. Let's yeah, just put it says
0: pin one F one, pin two F one, pin three NP.
1: Right. You, in other words, <laughs> if you didn't, if you had had no experience with tubes whatsoever, their pin out would make zero, zero sense. sense to you. There's not
0: even a, a schematic diagram for this thing. Uh, so yeah. it's... <laughs>
1: yeah no it's it's not it's
0: not super well done <laughs> no um but it is exciting to see something like this come out finally
1: it's yeah it's 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 cool in 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 terms of the tube world so so as a kind of a an overview of what this guy is it's just like every old school tube like your twelve a x seven little bottle tubes that you see out there that you can use for low level uh signal amplification um it, it runs identical, it's a, it's a triode configuration. In fact, inside the package, there's two separate triodes.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, so it's basically, think of it this way. It's kind of like two JFETs in, in one box. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, but the thing that's that's cool about it is it uses like one one-thousandth of the amount of power that, an, that a typical tube does.
0: Yeah, that, that's actually the interesting thing is the first sentence, it uh, says, can operate at low voltages, and with low power consumption. And I actually drew in here uh, an asterisk for tubes.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tubes were never really known for their... Um, power savings? Power savings or their efficiency.
0: Do they have a power saving pin that you can pull low that kind of like chills chills them out?
1: What Did you just say pull low on a tube? <laughs> just... Parker is a very digital guy. Let's just just put it that way but 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 okay so what's cool is 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 this guy runs on significantly lower voltage typically your tube circuits are going to run in the two to four hundred volt range somewhere that's a wide range but two to four hundred volts yeah somewhere in there i mean it's up to the designer you can you can pick whatever you want yeah, yeah. this guy runs in the 10 to 80 volt range so it's still by today's standards that's high voltage yeah high voltage but, but for tube guys that's That's uh, sacrilegious voltage.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the current seems to be pretty low on it too.
1: Very low, very low. Well, okay, the filament, uh, so just the the current required to heat the thing up is 17 milliamps as compared to 300 milliamps with its uh, predecessor.
0: Yeah, so I wonder if, uh, I guess they probably changed either materials or something inside of it to enable that filament heat to be, I guess, more efficient at heating the tube up.
1: Well, there's that, and I and the the actual elements they're using are significantly smaller. Okay. And yeah. the spacing between things is also much closer. Yeah, the,
0: the, um, probably because they have better manufacturing nowadays compared to the '60s to the design yeah. these tubes. Yeah. Because so you actually look at the dimensions of this guy, it's 46 millimeters by 17 millimeters, and which you know that's still pretty big. Mm-hmm. But the big thing for a tube is it's only 5.6 millimeters thick.
1: Yeah, so it can go in into a real small package.
0: Yep. Yeah. I'm thinking like a cell phone style size, you know, preamp for your for your cell phone. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> directly <laughs> in your cell phone. Yeah,
1: for the for the audio enthusiasts.
0: Yeah, an audio enthusiast iPhone case
1: where all they're streaming all their audio digitally across the airwaves and then putting it through a tube. Yeah, then
0: it audio outputs through the jack on it Yeah, into one of these tubes.
1: Well, I guess as long as it touches a tube somehow, then it sounds good, right?
0: Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... So it says, uh... <laughs> the new tube delivers exceptional linearity. So is that true?
1: Actually, okay, so according to the anode characteristics, mm-hmm. the linearity is awesome. Okay. This, this thing is actually... It it looks great in terms of its linearity. Most of its other stuff, its transconductance is pretty low. Its gain's pretty low. Uh, its anode resistance is really high. All of those are not good things. Yeah. Or or I shouldn't say not good, but they're they're not as they're not very desirable.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> even when using distortion circuits, it has an impressive response distortion tones that retain the characteristic. Pleasant overtones of a vacuum tube. So, can you actually mm. measure that kind of stuff?
1: Uh, I'd have to pull out my my BS meter and uh, and see how <laughs> much how much is going off on there.
0: BS over dB, huh? Yeah, that's that's exactly <laughs> it.
1: Uh, marketing hype.
0: I marketing think, hype. I think
1: that's what we can chalk that up to.
0: And you know, it's it's made by Nor. Uh, it's going to be made by uh, Nor, Noritaki. So uh, um, it is going to be made in Japan. Yep. So it's probably going to be a good tube.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We, uh, I've actually contacted the guys, and they got back to me, uh, and we can, we can expect to see these available in singles uh, sometime this summer.
0: Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. should we, I think we should definitely build something with it. Oh, I, I'm guarant- guaranteed I'm going to get a couple of these. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, this week, the Raspberry Pi 3 came out, Ooh. and that's kind of a, a big deal. So, we went from a, a, a tube to something that's the size of a tube that also runs at 1.2 gigahertz, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. A little <laughs> bit more technology in uh, in the in the Pi 3.
0: So the most important thing about the Raspberry Pi 3, at least in my opinion, is it's got built-in Wi-Fi and built-in Bluetooth.
1: Yeah, that's really cool.
0: So basically, you can hook up your uh, your keyboards and, and connect to the internet without having to waste your precious four USB ports that the Raspberry Pi 2 had. Um, some other things, it's got a beefier processor on it which personally i thought the raspberry pi 2 was enough processing power
1: it was something like was it 900 megahertz
0: yeah it was 900 megahertz um i always thought the raspberry pi 1 was a little weak and especially because raspberry pi 1 chugged with internet browsers yeah um and they're like if you can't access an internet browser i'm pretty sure that computer is worthless nowadays because so many apps and so many um sites Basically, are so heavy that yeah. you you kind of need a little more oomph. Yeah, some grunt. Yeah, to actually uh, um, to do that.
1: <laughs> well, I was reading up about it, and and everyone's kind of touting this as the first Raspberry Pi that actually counts as a real computer.
0: See, I thought the Raspberry Pi two was enough. It, it I used it for a, for a while myself.
1: It, it worked. It worked fairly well. Yeah,
0: and. Um, I think the great thing about the Raspberry Pi 2 is it was the first time... I mean, I did it over the Raspberry Pi 1, but it was really slow and chunky. Yeah. But the Raspberry Pi 2, you could SSH over with X11. And so you can actually, you know, basically st- uh, SSH tunnel your, your desktop in. Mm-hmm. And it actually was pretty snappy. Yeah. And you can actually would... You could play simple video games, actually, over an SSH tunnel. And it was fast enough to do that. Um I did.
1: I, I did the whole uh, uh, Doom pie. Where Doom I, pie. I, yeah, I, I put Doom on on my pie, and and it it,
0: it it worked. But man, it was brutal to play. It was it was laggy. It, 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 yeah, I've never tried that, but yeah, it worked pretty good. Um. So yeah, it runs a new ARM, a 64-bit ARM, I think. Uh. 1.2 gigahertz
1: with a gig of RAM.
0: Yeah, the Raspberry Pi Two was a gig of RAM, but uh, yeah, um. Also what's that's interesting is uh, comparing this guy to, like, the other system-on-chip boards. Because there's been a lot of... Basically, ever since Raspberry Pi 1 came out, there's been a huge influx of these system-on-chip cheap computers. Um, one of the more popular, I guess, maybe not popular, but well-known, would be the chip computer, which was the first $9 computer. Mm-hmm. And then right after that was the Raspberry Pi Zero if you can even buy one, because I've never seen one for sale. $5
1: computer. Yeah, it was computer.
0: supposedly $5. I've never seen one for sale. <laughs> um, and then there's the Pine 64, which has a Kickstarter. Um, we'll see if they even deliver, because Kickstarters usually don't. Um, Odroids, which is a reputable company that makes system-on-chip boards like the Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them out there.
1: Yeah, they're starting to pop up all over the place.
0: Um. So you have all these, I guess what you would call Raspberry Pi possible killers. And I, the interesting thing is when people compare your product to a Raspberry Pi killer or it's an X killer, that really just solidifies the dominance of whatever it's supposed to kill. Like how dominant the Raspberry Pi platform is in its circled space.
1: Yeah, the, the thing about it is though, it, it kind of seems like any of these guys could have been the raspberry Pi. Yeah, it's
0: just who came out first. Yeah, who who's adopted all of you know, who 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 owns most of the market basically. Yeah. The the it's really in the market space. I actually I don't think it's more market space. I think it's the community building. Is well, who did a better job at sure. grabbing the community first and building off that. And and,
1: and pie's completely. Oh yeah. Steamrolled everyone.
0: Yeah, right? if you look at I think Chips got a pretty decent one. Um and we'll see where Pine64 goes. And Odroid seems to have a more technical um, space, I guess. They don't really – it seems they don't really gear to the low end.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something I, I noticed myself with, with uh, the Pies that I wish was better is better documentation and easier access to the GPIO pins. Because they're like, you've got 40 GPIO pins. Good luck. You know, it's oh, it's it's, it's no. not as simple as saying our. So
0: the simplest way is you write to a file, and then, eventually, the GPIO changes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right.
0: There's no low-level stuff.
1: The first time I heard of, a, of of Raspberry Pi, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is blowing my mind that I can have an OS and actually access the the hardware pins direct." I mean, that that was amazing. And then I realized it's not that. Simple. It's yep. not that direct. Let's
0: and, say uh, it might have changed since last time I looked at it, but that was how it was when I was looking yeah, at it.
1: it. it's probably easier now.
0: So, uh, going on the um, MIT or some students at MIT, um, they developed some something that they call the sensor tape, which looks like a roll of masking tape. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically is a sensor network that's on a tape that has a atmega 328P. Um, it's already obsolete because they're using the 328P and not the 328PB, which we actually covered earlier in one of the podcasts. Right, right. Um, it's got a couple sensors on it and some blah, blah, blah. It's got LEDs, and that's important. Um, it's accessible over Bluetooth and all other Wi-Fi stuff. Um, but the interesting thing about it is basically they printed, I think it's about a one inch by one inch square, and all of them... I think it's it's more like an addressable microcontroller strip, or an addressable IoT device, kind of like an addressable LED RGB strip. Huh? That's what it seems like to me. In- addressable
1: intelligence.
0: Yeah, it's kind of weird. Um, it's it's one of those. Also, like, what kind of use cases they're looking for for it? Um, they say uh, that it can, if you attach it to something. It could it can figure out the shape of the device that it's attached to. Whoa! Wow. So it, so it can figure itself out in three D space of what it's what it is, or at least the shape of the tape, I guess.
1: That's kind of cool.
0: Yeah, so I I can see that if you put it on like a diaphragm or something, then and then it as the diaphragm expands, you could read that.
1: Or or wrap it around a pipe, and you could get the uh, information on the diameter of the pipe or something like that. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, that's that's kinda cool. What um I guess you just stick it wherever you want and
0: run power to it? Yeah, and it um and it communicates over that. Yeah, that's kinda cool. Yeah, and apparently it's Arduino friendly code, so As is everything. Yeah, as is everything that comes out. Um they have their, their thesis, I think it's a thesis online. Um I didn't see any design files in it, but I'm gonna keep digging a bit and see if I can actually find something and build one of these. Um, strips. It looks like it's on a flex circuit, so it's gonna be kind of interesting to get it to be made. Yeah. Um, but we'll, I'll give it a shot. See if we can build some just for goofing off.
1: Actually, th- that brings up something. Uh, talking about Arduino real quick. Uh, I saw something earlier uh, earlier this week where a guy uh, submerged an Arduino Uno in liquid nitrogen. Oh yeah. And he <laughs> overclocked it up to 65 megahertz
0: that be that's over three times as fast as it normally goes
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah so they have i guess if you overclocked it so at least in the fpga world or or in in actual microcontrollers the faster you go you eventually start running into um basically your io can't switch fast enough yeah. you start running yeah. into the actual electrons can't you, you can't switch them off fast enough or on fast enough, and so you start getting clock slew on all your data.
1: Yeah, right. They don't, electrons don't like to turn corners that fast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> At least on and off fast. They like to keep flowing. Well, that's inductance for you.
1: Right. Well, and, 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 and that's the whole thing. The, the Arduino, the, the I.O. ports, they, they were never designed to go anywhere near that fast.
0: Yeah, so I wonder if if, if uh, I guess I'll take a look at that what that guy posted, and see if he actually posted the uh, like the waveforms of, of the pin the GPIO on it. And if not, I guess that'd be a pretty cool thing to try out is actually a couple take a couple different microcontrollers yeah. and basically just make them output um, basically just a square wave as fast as they can.
1: Just just main loop where it's on off
0: on off all the all the just do like or do a sequence of the pins sure and overclock them in liquid nitrogen and cool them and see how fast you can get to the point where you can't actually either till the point where the microcontroller starts function stops functioning or you don't get a usable waveform out of the I O
1: huh yeah that'd be a fun little project
0: yeah fun little project cool (laughs) speaking of Arduino though. Um, I think it was came out today. There was a blog post by uh hernando Berrigan. um <laughs> yeah. that 's an italian name and i 'm i'm i 'm a texan uh, that 's the best I can do hernando hernando <laughs> 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 um so this guy is the uh original writer of the writing library that arduino 's libraries are based off of. Um, I did not know that. The wiring library. Yeah, wiring library. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, and so this article goes into all the uh, po- politics of Arduino and all that stuff. Uh, the Arduino.cc versus Arduino.org. Um, personally, I kind of ignored all that stuff because I don't use Arduino stuff. But what's the interesting thing about this article was he details in actually great detail the... History of the hardware that they chose initially.
1: Yeah, all the revisions that they went through.
0: Yeah, and and also going through the mindset of what they wanted this project to be in the end, mm-hmm. which is really cool.
1: It, it, it's actually kind of interesting because it seemed like they had a a vision for what they wanted it to be. Yeah. But large portions of that vision was kind of cloudy because they, they didn't know that people were going to adopt it as hardcore as people have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, uh, it's kind of... It, it, everything seemed a little bit trial and error, where it's like, hey, we'll build this board, and then people used it, and they're like, this is absolutely amazing. Uh, let's make another hardware revision.
0: Yeah, so... So I guess the, um, the first prototype, which was a shock to me, was it ran off the Parallax Javelin Stamp microcontroller, which was... That's an unusual choice, even for 2002, I think, is when that happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, but looking back, I guess actually in that time period, the stamp actually pretty, the basic stamp from Parallax actually dominated the, the low end hobby market pretty well. Yep. Um, because back then you basically had AVRs, picks, and that. Yeah, those were for the hobbies. Right. And. Um,
1: Mainly because those guys didn't – you didn't have to buy a $500 programmer.
0: Exactly. Yeah, you didn't have to buy this giant programmer to program your microcontrollers, and it didn't need weird voltages to program.
1: Right, you didn't have to pull something at 12 volts for a, a period of time and then bring it down to 5. And
0: Yeah. Um, But uh, they, they he ended up not using it. Hernando ended up not using it because it had proprietary tools. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in his thesis – um, is about how the entire project needed to be completely open source from the get-go. Yep. Um, at least all the software, because I'm pretty sure you can't get any of this stuff, the the internal hardware stuff at all, like the actual masks to make a AVR or or, or a PIC or whatever.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, somebody's going to make money on it.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, so his second choice was they started working with a PIC, and it was the same problem. Is at the time Microchip didn't have a uh, an open source solution for the tool chain. It was all proprietary tool chain. I, I wonder
1: if they're kicking themselves for that now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, if because it's what's interesting is is Microchip now has an open tool chain yep. and Prop has an open tool chain. Probably because Prop. of this kind of history. I don't know if it's maybe Microchip is for that because I wouldn't know, but I'm pretty sure Prop. Uh, Parallax propeller is open for different reasons because it came out. That open came out like recently, within the last two years. Okay. It's not like it was like 2005 and they did it.
1: Oh, uh, okay, okay.
0: Um, I don't know when Microchip opened theirs up either.
1: So, so the first revision was a Parallax Parallax stamp. Yep. A javelin, then pick was the second. Yep. Both of those didn't cut it because they weren't open.
0: Yeah, and then they went to Atmel and they used a giant. I think it was. It, it was a 1891 r 4008 yeah um and then they eventually settled on the 18 mega 128 to make it less expensive um and that would be the original hardware so to speak uh the wiring library right and ide because i think there was an ide based off of uh processing the processing is an ide uh it, it's in parallel with process
1: yeah if you've ever used processing, it's it's kind of like computer programming using an Arduino language. They're so similar.
0: Yeah, and it's actually interesting. Is he also goes into detail about um, Brian Dean's work, which, who's the guy who behind AVR Dude, mm-hmm. and that actually was coming out around the same time as this stuff too, so that would be like 2003, 2004. Right. And, and that's
1: just icing on the cake for AVR guys.
0: Yeah, and the crazy thing about that though is the Arduino IDE still uses – AVR dude to this day, yep to upload to cause it uses like I think the original one used the stk five hundred yep, protocol right. yeah. and now that aVR dude supports a lot of different protocols, but yeah, interesting that um, it's,
1: a, it's a cool progression to see that happen yeah it's
0: really cool to see this this history from the perspective of a student who wrote the original wiring library
1: actually, so uh, on top of all that. Um, I'm sure this uh, I believe this is available on hackaday this this whole article here
0: no he, it's on actually on his own website
1: oh okay. I'm sorry so on his own website if you go there, his master uh, master's thesis
0: it's on there as well is,
1: is is on there so if you want to read it it's I, it's it's large it's yeah. huge but you can read the basically the conception you can go through all the way through all of his thoughts on wiring and how he got his master's in engineering uh, through this yeah. So it's a it's a pretty cool read. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that's gonna. Uh, I think this was a long episode. Yeah, a lot of content. <laughs> but you know, last week's was a little short, so we kind of tried jam pack a lot of stuff in this one. Um, so I guess that's that's gonna do it up for this this episode. Awesome. So uh, I'm your host Parker Dillman. And I'm Stephen Craig. And uh, catch us next week for the next uh, MacroFab Engineering podcast. Take it easy.